0: Well good afternoon everybody, it's another Conversational virginity by Nature and me and Ian Gill, very much looking forward to today's guest, always am, and I've known this person for a while and she's going to be great fun and great value. She's actually uh, a well-known blogger, uh, she's an international speaker, and she is a very popular person on the agile slash lean community stage, uh, possibly the most popular goth I actually know in all of my uh, associates. Um, <laughs> The thing I like about her, her enthusiasm and curiosity seems to remain undiminished in over the decade that I have known her. And looking at her now, she is still looking like she hasn't aged at all. I'm super jealous. Today's guest is Liz Keogh. Hi, Liz, how are you?
1: I'm good, thanks, Ian. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. How
0: many agile goths are there, do you imagine?
1: Actually, a surprising number because about two thirds of us work in IT.
0: <laughs> uh, an early out of the day. Um, Liz, I've been snooping around uh, your LinkedIn. I mean, you know, uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat about that. And also, I had a good look again through your website, lizkeo.com, which is a treasure trove of articles. So people have uh, been looking for questions and uh, for all sorts of things, get in there. There is tons and tons of stuff. Uh, and it's been going up the oldest article I saw was something like 2008 it's an absolute cracking website and well curated well done on that you started well I've I've got you started sort of like mm, 2007 with ThoughtWorks a very famous agile firm and in fact you were an iteration developer there but you also were a trainer a software trainer a developer yeah yeah is that when your life (laughs) exploded or did it start even earlier than that
1: Yeah, I think 2007 is around about when my blog starts making sense. (laughs) So there are articles back there from 2004, but you probably don't want to look too closely at those. I was still very much a junior. So even though I actually started my career in 1998, Mm. um, that's when I graduated and I joined a little software house in Bath, but I was doing mostly waterfall um, for seven years just like six, six years doing nothing but waterfall. Um, so really highly planned, large scale. We did one defense project. Um, the few little things I did that were a bit more ad hoc, there was just no customer focus. There was no delivery focus. They never made it out the door. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing we had where we did have a bit of a customer focus, they learned that they should have a customer focus too late. So, literally in the first six seven years of my career just nothing I wrote got published nothing made it to production Mm -hmm. and I thought that was kind of normal that you you had to be lucky to be a software developer to get something out so when I joined ThoughtWorks it was very late in 2004 I joined ThoughtWorks Um, within a week I had written something which was in Dixon stores a month later and I was just so over the moon. I, th- I thought this was magic. I had to learn how to do it, which is how I got so heavily involved in Agile because it was such a contrast with the previous way of working. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so that that's pretty much why I ended up in, in this world and investing in it so heavily because I thought of all those developers out there who weren't having as much fun as me.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, I think people don't realize quite how true. That story is in the good, old, the good old days that software just didn't get to the live post. It didn't get out there at all. And, and developers, that's just, it's just heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. It, it
1: still happens. You know, yeah. there's still government contracts. In fact, the government's going back backwards now, you know, the, the, so. yeah, the GDS was amazing, but yeah. there's still large scale projects being funded, which just never going to see the light of day. Yeah. Um, Simon wardley has got an absolutely wonderful tweet where he he says you know this one company told him they were going to do a five billion pound project and he says he can get the same result for something like two million they ask him how he says you give me two million I sit on a beach for two years and we'd tell you we failed <laughs> you know and five, the two years later they're like yeah we should have given you the two million um, <laughs> so I'm it's company,
0: I'll take a meal
1: <laughs> yeah and you, you said those kind of failures make the news, but there's so many, so many similar things going on.
0: Exactly. Um, but ThoughtWorks were, I mean, certainly around that time, very aggressive XP shop, weren't they? Extreme yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: And, and, yeah. And, and, and So, what was it like there? Is that when you met Dan and, and guys like that?
1: Yeah, Dan, Chris, Matts, um, Dan North, Chris Matts. Uh, who else was around at that time? I mean, all of the BDD stuff kicked off there. Yeah. You know, it started in in the London ThoughtWorks office. Um, I saw Dan presenting a week after I joined at an away day on a Saturday. Really? Um, he was presenting J Behave. Uh, and he later told me that it was a little bit of a thought experiment, but I actually checked it out and tried to get it working. And of course, it didn't compile when I first got hold of it. So I yeah. made it compile and then I fixed some bugs and I kept emailing him. Um, and saying hey I made this change and after a, a few of these he said Liz I've made you a committer um, please learn how to use patches and stop emailing me this stuff <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. Um, yeah so I ended up you know working quite heavily on Jbehave and of course um, Jbehave was the first BDD tool and yeah. then they were porting it to Ruby because I think Ruby was the cool language at the time and eventually Dave Chulinski got hold of it made it work with plain text I saw that backported it to java so jbehave and cucumber and all those tools now work with plain text as a result but it was it was you know the the revelation that you could have that level of focus on yes. what a customer wants yes Um, that you could do something really really small and I still to this day use single scenarios to help me work out what an MVP might look like
0: yeah No. I mean actually I was one of the things about your blog um, you've got a joy and an attention to detail about the spoken word, the written word, the meanings of words. Um, and I think you've got this lovely article, uh, BDD a three headed monster. For, for, for those not so familiar with <laughs> BDD, for, for, for the layman, um, they can read BDD. Uh, there's another one as well, I said, they're not user stories, so I might come on to that one. Explain to the world what BDD should be about.
1: It's using examples in conversation to illustrate how systems behave. and there are some good (laughs) yeah there are some tools which take those examples and automate them and turn them into tests the testing is a nice side effect lots of people treat it like it's a a testing tool and a testing method yeah but it's it's really it's more of an analysis method than anything else
0: now when we talk about tools i mean it used to be and probably still is famous for tools and, and being formidable and um specs and requirements Well, the great thing about BDD though is it's actually a proper conversation in language that a user can bring rather than a technician brings.
1: Yeah. Um, Danth, I think, said if he was going to rename it these days, it would be called example-driven development or something like that. So it's just using examples. um, And people have said, you know, will you certify BDDs? How do you certify teaching somebody to ask, can you give me an example and start from that? You know, it's, that's the first step in the journey so it's a really easy thing to get started with i think because of the tooling people think it's formidable um also because historically there's been a bit of an adversarial relationship between developers and testers and mm-hmm. getting them talking and asking those questions with each other can be tricky yeah
2: right.
1: you know um and between the business and it as well so yeah sometimes getting the business involved can be can be hard
0: i, th- I think there's an interesting point I, mean, I I think um one of the things i'm noticing that bdd seems to be becoming much more constricted and semantic and the joy of the conversation is getting lost it's sort of i feel it's excluding people rather than including people and i wonder if you'd notice that and and how yeah. do you put that <laughs> That ossification that line scale coming over you know something that was actually quite simple at the beginning
1: there's a, a blog post you'll see called a developer walks into a bar <laughs> and it's it's got him asking for a pint of beer in um language that matches bdd language yeah.
2: right okay yeah.
1: so uh yeah um and it's nobody talks that way nobody talks in terms of given when then no absolutely you know um, they always use uh, they'll they'll put the context after the events so they'll say you know well if when when I do this this should happen because this other thing already happened they'll use the word if instead of given they'll use the word when instead of given you know so you you have to learn how to just um, accept those conversations and yeah. unpick them later yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and just listen and pay attention it's amazing how many developers because they're trying to jump to that given when their language they're not really hearing what's being said
0: yes yeah and and, and it's such a fundamental conversation to have but makes a world of difference isn't it
1: yeah it, and i'm I'm as bad as any dev honestly i'm terrible That's um <laughs> I, I always say don't don't get a dev like me to test the code because I, I will, je- I'm a pattern matcher. I love patterns. I love models. I love abstractions. I love finding out new ways to look at the world. And I go, this is awesome. I see these patterns. It's amazing, <laughs> but it means I'm missing all the stuff that doesn't fit my pattern. that doesn't fit my model and testers are so superb at picking up on that.
0: Yes, they are. They, they, they never get the credit. I believe, I don't think they ever get the credit for that different wiring and that different approach. So I still yep. like testers all over the, the over the team. Um you started thought, well, well, you you blossomed in footwork in Agiles, man, and we talked about BDD, but your curiosity keeps driving you on, and that's one of the things I, I, I like about you. I mean, you've done a lot of gigs, we can talk about all of them. Um, and you and I were talking, and I said, Well, now I approach things, I try and re- forget everything and start again because the context is different and you don't want to go in with preconceived ideas. And you said, well, I had that same experience, but it was a long time ago when uh, I got into Kinevin, And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Again, but again, for the layman, for, the, for those of us who are not as sharp as you, how and this is Dave Snowden's uh, founding work, how do you summarise Kinevin, And perhaps we can talk about how you've been using that over your career.
1: It's a sense-making framework, which means it is a framework for making sense of the world, right. particularly in different situations depending on how certain or uncertain the outcome is right and the their relationship between cause and effect particularly
0: so so as an example here we go. <laughs> as, an, as example. an example yep <laughs> give an example what that means in the real world
1: i really like examples i use examples all the time so um i've got a plug in my hand right yep. putting a plug in a wall is obvious there's yeah. only one way to do it yeah. it's fixed it's um, you, it's you know a child can do it yeah like, okay you might have to watch a child to make sure they don't do anything else stupid, but the whole thing is designed to try and minimize that stupidity yeah. you know minimize the the chance of getting things wrong um and th- that's that's what they call obvious they've actually renamed all the domains recently, so uh, I think they're calling it clear now right it's clear it's it's obvious it's simple um even to a child. And things get more and more complicated. They require expertise, but they're still predictable. You can still pick up your phone and barring batteries and things like that, you turn it on, it's going to work. It's going to give you all the things that you're used to finding in that kind of a machine. Right. Um, and a lot of mechanical things are complicated, but the outcome is known. The problem comes when we're dealing with things where the outcome is emergent and we call that complex So we got clear, complicated and then complex. Um, And the complex domain cause and effect correlated in retrospect. So you can see with hindsight how you got there but you couldn't possibly predict it. So that's the domain of emergent outcomes, emergent practices. Um, You have to have enabling constraints. So where the constraints in a plug are fixed, Um, And in a machine, there are many, many good ways to put a watch together. But again, they're they're what we call governing constraints. So they're rules that apply regardless of context. In the complex domain, you have to have these um, enabling constraints. So guidelines, heuristics, things which allow people to escape out of them just a little bit. Yeah. Um, Dave Snowden uses concept of a salt marsh versus a seawall so a seawall is a hard and fast thing when it breaks it breaks catastrophically when a salt marsh absorbs the sea you get some warning you get to see it coming in and it absorbs some of the some of the problems um i always think of a sink and or the overflow valve you know the Uh, overflow hole in the sink so you've got a little bit of of make there's something that makes it a little bit safer to fail yeah Right. So that, that concept idea of trying things out, which is safe to fail, dominates the whole of that complex space. And of course, then the last one we have is chaos and chaos is accident and emergency. It's your house burning down. It's people bleeding to death. Um, it's currently Donald Trump demanding that, you know, that, that, <laughs> the vote, everybody stop counting the vote because for him it's urgent. For him, he need, he's losing, he needs to act really, really fast. For everybody in um, on the other side in Binance world, they're, we're waiting right now for the result to emerge. And we're gradually seeing these states tipping over to lean towards blue. But it's an emergent thing. It's an emergent process for him. So it's really interesting. It's... It, it, people talk to me about whether it is to do with your perspective or where you're coming from as to where you are Mm -hmm. um i do think that sometimes one person's urgent opportunity is another person's um urgent problem um but i also think that that part of so the the middle bit disorder in the Kinevin, there's a middle bit is disorder it's a domain where we don't know which of these dominates so we behave according to our preferred domain Right. And some people really like chaos and commands and control and pretending there's chaos even when mm-hmm. there isn't, you know, so you can see some of that at play, I think, right now. I'm not an expert in this. I just really like being able to see this stuff through that lens. So I wouldn't necessarily um, quote me as an expert on American politics, um, but I do really love that idea that you've got these emergent outcomes you've got these sense of urgency and chaos and of course chaos chaos happens because there's no constraints so um, you know fire burns until it runs into constraints it's what makes it dangerous so one of the things that i like to do as a coach is i come in with that lens and i look to see how things feel um, and when I was talking to, I was talking to uh, Sally-Ann Freudenberg about this, she's yep. got a psychology degree yep. you know. so she's really good at this stuff.
0: She's a great and, speaker as well, by the way, if, if people get to see her speaking, definitely uh, hook into that one.
1: Yeah, yeah, Sally, Sally's just, uh, Sally-Ann is just amazing. Um, so she's, I was talking to her about how I worked out that Kinevin was so relevant at a time when lots of people said, you know, it's really nice, but how do you apply it? And I said i can feel the different domains yeah. so i can feel when something's obvious when it, when it feels clunky and mechanical i know it's complicated when it feels um and it looks organic and messy and in, uh, i can feel things growing and changing that's complex when it feels like everything's on fire that's obviously chaotic how come other people can't see these patterns and Sally Ann said to me you know you're autistic this I was like oh a lot of stuff made sense at that point (laughs) Um, (laughs) but literally this is so this is the lens that I get to see the world through I get to look and go okay how is this team managing things are they busy thrashing trying to put out fires everywhere great so let's put some guidelines in place let's get some things under control let's put some constraints around it let's have some some heuris- nice heuristics and principles yeah. some ways of working and they don't have to be hard and fast rules they can just be guidelines that they put up on a wall to remind everybody or that you know they have it motto of the day because we're all working virtually right now yeah, whatever it is that reminds them to you know make high quality work put the fires out permanently whatever it is that they need to do to get that chaos under control Whereas if I come in and things feel really rigid and regimented and strict and they can't get their work done because of the cab process, because of these rules, you know, um, I look to see if we can make a hole in it. I look to see if we can make it permeable. Could we put an exception clause in that cab process? You know, what would it take to allow us to ship something without having to go through that two week thing or doing a smaller version of it? Yeah. You know. Could we make it lighter? Could, oh, we could do it if it was a really small change and we had automated rollback, if we had six months of no significant bugs and 90% automated tests. And like, you find out what the contexts are and now you've made a hole and then you can start widening that context. You can start teaching other people how to do rollbacks, how to do great quality automated tests, how to um, really engage a business so that their things are very small, so that they can get it out too. And so it starts spreading. But you never know which of these changes you're gonna make is gonna land in any situation because human beings are are pretty much always complex. Any human system is dominated by complexity and cause and effect are only correlated in hindsight. So you have to try a bunch of things out and then see which ones are landing
0: yeah you, and then you, do them all I'll, I'll come back to some of those points you, you've made tons as usual sorry
1: <laughs> brain dump can Evan brain dump
0: <laughs> well that's exactly what i wanted to do you said something though about remote working and you you can you can literally sense things and I, I i do struggle with the lockdown or not seeing people as much because i like to go to the place of work and i like to feel how people are behaving is there lots of hubbub or is it quiet or is it you know people moving around you know what sort of energy is in the office and i can feel that and sense it and it gives me a real idea of what's going on and something you said just made me think of that so how do you are you finding now if you're working more remotely you're losing some of those um radars that have been closed off a bit or does it not matter to you if you're autistic, maybe it doesn't matter to
1: you. Yeah, I mean, I'm partially deaf as well. And <laughs> the last client, the video connection, the, the bandwidth wasn't good for video. So I've been working just mostly with just audio. Yeah. And there there was something that, well, I, tr- I studied hypnotherapy for a little bit. And something my instructor <laughs> said to me rang home, which is that you can tell more easily if somebody is lying when you can't see their face
2: right yeah yeah
1: right it's easier to it's actually there's something that comes through that's a bit more genuine when people aren't face-to-face so they're not on the stage so much Mm -hmm. um and you can definitely you can hear their breathing that's one of the things that i was also taught was pay attention to people's breathing right so you can hear when they're stressed you can you can still hear the pace of their language whether they're measured thinking whether their voices is raised whether they're you know that's where the stress comes and i've i've been talking to people about sustainable pace yeah and they're saying i've got so much work on i can't okay you know that this is not sustainable you know that you will end up going off sick and all of those overtime hours that you have put in won't matter mm. you might as well have just paced yourself because at some point you're going to end up collapsing this you you're, you're the seawall right you're, you're yeah. treating yourself you're becoming the seawall oh, yeah. you're being pushed to the point where it's going to break and it's going to break catastrophically so let's give the organization a little bit of warning while it's safe to fail let's start saying no now yeah
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: right It's, it's literally those kind of conversations. I'm having so much more, many more of those conversations right now. So many stressed people, um, and the, the mismatch, if that's one thing I can fix in organizations. And I know Dan North and Chris Matt have got loads of processes around this. They've got this thing called value mapping, business mapping, um, depending on which bits you're looking at, but the matching, the, organization's capacity to do work to the demand yes yeah. right just that the amount of times I've, I've watched teams and they've carefully gone through their scrum process they've signed up for what looks like a reasonable two weeks of work and then somebody's coming in the side because the scrum masters are inexperienced they don't know how to say no there are pl- relationships at play in the background and complexities dominated by relationships, right? So the relationships, how the work really gets done. And yeah. somewhere, some some business person or some business proxy, some BA has gone to a dev and gone, can you stop that and do this instead, please? Yeah. And just completely undermine the process. And I look at their JIRA boards and I just see all of these new pieces of work that have come in. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes in teams, that's normal. Sometimes their job is responding to business requests. Yeah. Yeah right or responding to issues but for a lot of these teams it really is just disruptive context switching yeah and then they don't get anything done because it takes it takes an hour to switch from one context to the other you know or a day if you've got to tear down and redo your your development environment
0: absolutely i mean i think um in, in, in before i got involved with agile just The thing I've always noticed if I I was ever asked to look at a department or a business, what's going on, you could be pretty sure there was too much content switching and too much work in progress. Always, always. And if you just deal with those two things, you're probably 90%, 99% of the time going to get a major improvement pretty quick.
1: Absolutely.
0: um, Even now I keep keep bumping into it. Um, But Hey, the, Thinking about that, it was quite interesting though. Resourcing generally, when you're head of a department, and uh, you know you have to get money, or you have to deal with some <laughs> uh, And and I never, I always try to avoid saying I'm under resourced, um, or I'm over, I'm over required. Would be my preferred. Is I'm out of sync. Do you want me to do more work? I could do things. I could be more efficient, but I need more resource, or I could do less work. It's up to you which way we're doing. it. Does, when you're approaching senior conversations when you're thinking about scale and organizations are you finding gnevin as well is helping you there in explaining the world around them in a way that they can think about investment differently
1: yeah yeah definitely um you know when when so one of the big things i've, I've said is the use of the word risk a lot yeah. yeah because they get risk people senior stakeholders get risk yeah. right so you go Well, look, this bit of it is new and we've never done it before. Right. Right? So if it's new and you've never done it before, it's going to be complex. Why don't we try an experiment? Why don't we prototype it? Why don't we spike it? Why don't we get it out? Um, There's still a tendency... uh, around people who are new to Agile, business people particularly who are new to Agile, that they, they know they're only going to get one release. So they still try and put all their requirements in a big bucket. They're not used to this idea that the first thing isn't the whole thing. Yeah. So I came across one situation where it was actually an IT stakeholder, a c- senior IT leader had made these promises to the business and made this commitment. Yeah. And I said to the team, well, how about you get out this one tiny thing? They said, well, we can't because... The commitment is something bigger it's like it's the first part of the commitment it all of it is a subset of this big commitment but you, if you get this bit out you can get feedback on it and like oh, this idea that they could partially deliver on a commitment yeah. was actually seen as dangerous <laughs> you know that, that it would show even showing a bit of their delivery would would cause ripple effects in this organizer in the, this department you know with trying to get this big release out and it's like it's okay to try something and then find out you're wrong it's better than doing something big yeah Um, i talked to another team about rollback um and they said oh you can't roll back here rollback is seen as a last resource like (laughs) really oh no (laughs) you know for for so many other teams i've worked with that's been their safety net that's the the idea that you can roll back easily um i had another team in another company who they did a big release in fact there were about 12 teams working in this department they did a big release that spanned across about four teams and something went wrong and they rolled back yeah. you know they went oh well good news this rollback works let's go again tomorrow yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it was just such a such a non event um nobody really minded but getting it, it it's all really cultural it's always so cultural as to what will work and what won't
0: do you think the and talking about risk and i think it's interesting i mean i I like the rollback i think think some of the things that i envy now for um heads of development and heads of it is some fabulous tools that allow you to roll back and get out of trouble so much better than the good old days um but when talking about risk, do you find that there's senior managers who are more entrepreneurial and they get it and then you get those who have a little bit more administrative and it's all about the dates and risk is, well, you're, they don't want risk anyway and then they just get petrified and stop anything happening.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And- um- how do we deal and with some them?
1: are worse than others?
0: Yes, <laughs> are. And they are. get quite quite fruity roles in that middle management layer. They can really sit on sit yeah. on you, and, and and they're a buffer from you to to the entre- entrepreneurs as well.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. I've I found Wardley mapping as a concept really helps as well. So Wardley mapping is hugely related to Canavin. You know, the the two of them do Simon Wardley Dave not and they they do talks together now. They found out they've got so much in common with their two different models.
0: Yeah. Um, would you like to explain Wardley maps or?
1: Wardley maps, I can explain Wardley maps, right. So you take a big piece of paper or a whiteboard and on the vertical axis, you put visibility to the customer right. and on the horizontal axis, you put how mature is it, the various bits of the system are. Right. So you've okay. got your Genesis, which is your novel ideas that don't quite work yet. You've got your custom build where you know, you've, you've managed to get something and it's a differentiator for your organization or department. Um, then you've got your product rental where somebody else is producing it or you're stabilizing something for a larger market
2: Right. Okay. and
1: so your products can end up in there um and then you've got commodities big systems um and so you 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 map your systems out and the the other thing is that things always move to the right yes okay so things always become more and more mature except that you can build on things and repurpose things which then moves into the left again so they end up with novel things Um, and the movement of things stabilizing for something for the first time for instance is also complex so you get complexity on the left-hand side of the map where the the Genesis custom-built stuff is but you also in fact Genesis you could argue comes out of novel ideas which is chaotic separating people to come up with ideas they can't talk to each other so there's no consensus building etc it's called the shallow dive into chaos go look it up Um, Anyway, but th- so you've got complexity over that side of the map, but you've also got complexity in the movement, and the thing it moves through is inertia.
2: Right.
1: So one of the things I did for Map Camp was redraw the um, – I redrew the the typical Wardley map uh, template as a kind of – a, a role-playing D&D scenario with really? um, dragons and a big mountain range and mountains of madness and the yawning chasm of doom where the <laughs> boundaries between the different faces are because that, that's, this is the inertia, right? This is cultural change. Yes. This is getting somebody to admit that that library you spent four months building, you could now replace it with something like Cucumber.
2: Yeah 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 it's yeah.
1: that it's yeah. that and it's it's really it's tricky for people to change how they look at things um and that it's an unlearning process yeah it's also really tricky to get them to invest in stabilizing things and making them production ready um, G- Jeffrey Moore, who did Crossing the Chasm and Escape Velocity, I think it's in Escape Velocity, he talks about Horizon One, Horizon Two, Horizon Three. Yeah. So he says, you know, Horizon One is in in play right now, making your money, really boring, very stable. Horizon Three is your R and D, so that's your custom build stuff, your Genesis coming in, right? Horizon Two is stabilizing it, and it's loss leading. It fights for budget with Horizon One. Yeah. okay. So you end up with these spiky, prototypey things that they haven't had time because these teams are under pressure. They don't have time to stabilize it. And so it's full of bugs. And now they're spending all their time firefighting and everybody's fed up of the release. And there's a really human tendency when that happens, which is to say, okay, well, if we can't get it out, we should spend more time making sure it's good before we get it out. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as you do that, you increase the transaction costs. This is where these big change boards come from. Right. So now mm-hmm. you've increased the transaction costs of getting something live, which means the only way you can go live is with bigger batches.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: And then, of course, it's still wrong because now your batches are bigger. They've got more bugs in. Mm -hmm. which means that now you need to spend more time making sure it's correct, which means more UAT, more cab process, which means bigger batches. And if you're not careful, you end up in these situations, these big organizations have got themselves into where everything is dominated by the need to make sure that it's all correct. Correct. When actually you're doing something new or, or moving something for the first time, which means it's there's going to be stuff that you discover there's going to be it's you cannot test something with production like data and environments unless you have a perfect copy of your production environment which nobody ever does um the only way to do it is to have you know blue green environments good rollback all of the all of the kind of things you're talking about which enable that 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 they basically make it safe to fail yes yeah, and yeah. as soon as you make it safe to fail then you can start bringing down that transaction cost you can start doing smaller batches again so yeah, oh, yeah. it's it's really interesting to see that it, it's very very human
0: but isn't it always it, it, it makes perfect sense to me <laughs> <laughs> probably because i'm not a coder or no <laughs> guy i only deal with humans that's the only the bit i can only relate
1: yeah and it, <laughs> Dan North said once that there are some people in the world who they know about confirmation bias, so they don't think it applies to them because they know about it. That's called bias bias, yeah. um, <laughs> which I really liked. You know, I, I still catch myself doing the whole that won't work. Yeah. Um, even though it's safe to fail and yeah. just say no to things because we're all. We're all pattern matchers. Dave, Dave Snowden says we're not best fit pattern matchers; we are first fit pattern matchers. So we stick to something, we we see something, and we stick to it, and um. We then can't see a different direction. Yeah. Um, and I think devs are worth it, worse at this than testers are, by the way, because um, <laughs> again, we're abstract, We're pattern spotters, right? Um. We don't see other possibilities. We don't open ourselves up to different ways of, of looking at things. Um, there was an experiment with University College London. They had these electronic snakes under rocks in electronic game. And the idea is you turn over the rocks. If you, there's a snake under the rock, you get an electric shock. It's nice. right. what these volunteers. I don't know who volunteers for these, um, but the idea, the object of the game is to turn over all the rocks with, without snakes under them. So you learn to, to predict the snake population and how they behave. They varied the levels of snakes under rocks. The people who were most stressed were the ones with fifty percent probability of snakes under rocks. Mm, yeah, not yeah. the ones who were getting shot all the time. They were inured to it. Not the ones who were not getting shot very often, but the ones who didn't know whether they were going to get a shock or not. And this is this is how much we hate uncertainty as human beings, right? We're not very we're really bad at dealing with it. Um Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast and slow author, he's got a beautiful paper called Judgment under uncertainty, which shows how all these statistical researchers who know about things like small sample bias exhibit small sample bias. It shows how We just don't deal well with uncertainty at all. Um, Dave Snowden's actually started, he taught us, and I don't know where this came from, but he taught me to call them cognitive heuristics rather than cognitive biases, because most of the time they work. (laughs) most of the time they're true and we couldn't function without them yeah yeah it's just that they trip us up as well you know it's simultaneously my favorite and worst favorite and least favorite thing about human beings is our ability and our tendency to move forward in uncertainty by spotting patterns some of the time they aren't really there
2: yeah
0: yeah yeah i i i can see that i (laughs) So much of that is, so true. I was just thinking about living at home and how do you react to things and then you desperately want something to happen. All that evidence will be just enough. Thank you very much. I'm going to move on and get yourself yeah. into all sorts of, I wish I hadn't made that mistake. Or then you start defending your position, don't you? You use a small bit of sample that justifies you go forward, realize you're in the poop and you think, right, let me defend my position. So I'm in the position. I'm going to stay there because I can't be embarrassed to say, yeah, I got it wrong. Yeah. And that happens on massive scale. Massive scale in organisations. Um, do you know what's interesting? Listening to you, and I, you know, I've loved all of this, and I hope that everybody listening to is enjoying it too. Um, we haven't mentioned anything boring like stories or SAFe or Scrum, or not that boring, but we haven't mentioned any of those things. Um, dealing with scale, there has been this tendency to try and find a thing that will sort it all out, and we can manage it and process it away listening yeah. to you it makes me feel is that a very sensible approach
1: god no <laughs> no not at all um so i i really loved chris mats did a talk at lean agile scotland called the last Scot community yes lean agile scotland community and he talks about crossing the chasm again and he says you know before so that with the innovators and early adopters we're prepared to tweak things to make them fit context. We're prepared to try them out and feedback and change them. And we work with the creators to, to adapt things so that they work because we've got needs that can only be met by these things. Yeah. On the other side of the chasm are people who do not want to be tweaking and bug fixing and, you know, feeding back. They just want a solution. Yes. And so the whole industry's come up with these solutions that they now sell but what we're actually dealing with is cultures and everything in a culture has to be adapted to fit that culture so what we're seeing is people are doing these agile transformations with end goals in mind here is what we'll look like when we're done yeah and what actually happens is the work is still going through all the back channels it's still dominated by relationships yes yes now you've got the appearance the, the superficial appearance of everything being organized the way you want it but actually that's not what's really going on
0: so fundamentally nothing's really changed
1: it, it might get disrupted and you might get some change but you've got no idea if you're not looking for it you've got no idea whether it's a good change or not
0: right. And is, is this why these initiatives can just get exhausted after nine months the, the, the culture of the organization oh, for this which we're, we're just going to go back to where it was or they're just throwing off any of the chain it's, it's because I it's think, not really getting hold of that culture it's not, it's not it's, adapting to the culture the culture has being tried to be changed
1: yeah so one of the things i like to look at is is it better yeah so i've talked with a lot of teams and they can't ship. you know that for various reasons so Um, The Agile Fluency Model, Jim Shaw, Diane Larson, this talks about this quite strongly, right? It says it normally starts with development and they change direction based on feedback, but they still can't ship anything. Even being able to change direction based on feedback is more likely to get you something valuable out and it's more likely to help it be smaller. So even that is worth fighting for even just getting basic scrum processes in place you know so they show it to somebody every couple of weeks even that is better than than just charging on the waterfall way so okay maybe you can't ship maybe you haven't got the xp processes in there but it doesn't mean that the agile stuff you've adopted is bad yeah yeah and it doesn't mean that it's you know you're not going to go backwards from that if you've tried it most of the time so okay maybe the culture fights safe or maybe it fights large-scale scrum or whatever it is you've now you've just hit the inertia yeah yeah right you've just hit the inertia that's all that's happened and I've, i've said at map camp inertia is the quest trying to find your path through those fitness landscapes is the quest finding the low energy waste and Uh, The the one thing I tell coaches when I'm training them is you're going to hit walls when you do don't don't push because you'll get the backfire effect. You'll get people saying that won't work here because and now they're justifying it to themselves. Now Mm. they're fixating on the idea that it won't work. And the more they talk about it not working, the less likely it is they'll move. So you're just making you're just creating a seawall. You're just making this rigid thing that it's resisting you. So instead, try multiple parallel probes. A probe is something that's safe to fail. Multiple of them, lots and lots of things. Scatter ideas around, see what lands. See if you can find people on the ground who are making changes happen. Because they've already tried the probes, right? A lot of the time when I come in as a coach, there's already stuff going on. And what actually it needs is somebody to spot the good stuff, go, that's really good, and right. identify it and amplify it and provide those people with confidence and ways of talking about it and passing it on to others. So finding the stuff that's working and amplifying it changes the constraints. Yes. And when you shift the constraints, now you've got new paths. Now you've changed the landscape. So now you can find different ways through. And now the things which were resisted earlier, you know, I've got I've had places where I couldn't teach BDD because the developers and the testers weren't getting on. but they would do automated tests okay they wouldn't talk about them which is a pain and it's not really bdd if you're not having the conversations but they would create some automated tests sure they were a little bit brittle a little bit divorced from what the business the way the business talked about it you didn't get that gorgeous ubiquitous language but it did start building the relationship between a dev and tester yeah. So let's do more of that you know okay let's let's forget three amigos let's do more automated testing after the fact, I know it's not brilliant, but it's better it's better, it's better, it's better and this is the the pragmatism that I've had to learn as a coach yeah yeah that getting over this idea that you're doing it wrong, you're not doing it wrong you're doing it better there's good and better it's not wrong and right it's good and better.
0: Yeah. yeah 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 i uh i love that and i and I, I think when people say why do we need coaches that enthusiasm there <laughs> that will to a win is a win <laughs> the yeah. enthusiasm is better is better and better and i think that's what matt hoskin recently said he said what's agile It's making tomorrow better than it was today and you think it's simple as that well there's probably more to it than that but your enthusiasm as ever infectious and electric thank you um I'd love to talk to you more but I played made our time is running out and I did promise I did promise that I would keep to a good time schedule for you because I know you're a busy person Liz if people want to get in touch with you and talk about some of the ideas or even get you into their organization bring some of that joy uh how can they get hold of you
1: uh you're following me on twitter my tweets are protected but if you follow me I do check every so often I okay. let anybody in who doesn't look like they're, they're- voting for trump um so you know uh <laughs> <Get out there. laughs> your chances, chances of me saying yes are really good um yep. and then you can dm me my dms are open anyway so you can always dm me on twitter
0: fantastic and um, also if you haven't looked at uh liz this is uh, website liz um lizkeog.com. I'll uh, we'll put a link in at the bottom of the podcast so you can check that. There's, a, there's loads and loads of stuff in there as well and well worth it. And, and, and you're still trading as Lunavore.
1: Yeah, that's my Twitter name as well. That's it's Lunavor. Right. Yeah, L-U-N-I-V-O-R-E.
0: There you go. Liz, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait in another 10 years to find out what you found out and discuss that then as well.
1: Cheers. Thanks, Cheers, Ian. Then. It was an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you very much.